1: Uh, But even he described the uh, Annapolis Convention as abortive. And I could never understand why he and so many other writers saw Annapolis that way, even as they described the convention as achieving everything that its key figures hoped it would.
0: That's Jason Yontz. And he's got a new article on how the Annapolis Convention was critical in shaping the debates that led to the coming American Constitution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company. Publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming. The War for America, Lexington to Princeton. By Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're joined by Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Jason Yontz. And we'll be discussing one of the little-known but very important steps from a revolutionary or rebellious series of colonies to a fully functioning free democratic republic. And that will be the Annapolis Convention. We have a collective amnesia, I think it's safe to say, in this country uh, that sort of falls between Yorktown and the Constitution. It's about a six-year gap uh, where we pretend that things were just sort of finding their way, uh, but not really a problem. And when we have a constitution, that's when the ball really gets rolling. Of course, we know on this show that's not true. Uh, the constitution was the product of many years of trial and error and debates ranging from things like the rights of states to economic policy, specifically, for today's episode, tariff policy. And the Constitution was a way of ironing those details out. And, truth be told, we're still ironing out a lot of those details uh, in our Constitution. Uh, but as Jason Yance will join us today and talk about the Annapolis Convention, uh, I think you'll see uh, a much... Uh, A clear, clear picture emerge of, of what that process looked like. The Annapolis Convention will involve most of the states and some of the biggest names in revolutionary and the early national America. Uh, names we all recognize. Names that you'll hear and will give you pause. And you'll ask yourself, well, why don't I know more about this? Go to the Journal of the American Revolution website, allthingsliberty.com. Find Jason's article. It's a great read, very thorough, especially if you're interested in the economics of early America, Uh, and you'll see exactly what this debate looked like. Really, it's a first-rate article, and he was a first-rate guest. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jason Yance. Jason Yance, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Tell us about your background. Well, I grew up in uh, western North
1: Carolina near Andrews, near the uh, Georgia-Tennessee-North Carolina line. And um, without getting too much into my work life, I moved to San Diego about five years ago and wanted to get back to history, which was one of my first loves. And San Diego was a good environment. My job at the time was pretty low stress. And I found a good opportunity through Pittsburgh State University in Kansas to start studying again. I, uh, studied under, uh, Dr. Chris Childers and Dr. Chris Lawson. Um, uh, primarily, uh, Dr. Lawson went on sabbatical and unfortunately, so, um, I worked with Dr. Chris Childers who specialized in the early Republic. He tended to favor, uh, post 1820 and I tend to be more pre 1820, but that's no big deal for us. Uh, I wrote my thesis on, uh, constitutional history and three of the uh, key framers who we tended to forget about nowadays. And after graduating, I really didn't want to stop uh, working in history. So last year, I had to move back to the East Coast. I'm living in the D.C. area now, and I found J.A.R. and contacted Don, and we, I sent my first Uh, essay at the time, which was on the Standing Navy question, and that's where I'm at now.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, the conventions that occurred before the Philadelphia Convention, um, they tend to get mentioned in passing, but they don't really get their uh, very good attention. And there's a, with Annapolis in particular, there's a strange disconnection among certain historians when discussing it. The, uh, I'd say of all the uh, historians who've ever crossed the topic of the Annapolis Convention. Forrest MacDonald probably did the most thorough job, as he did with many things. Uh, But even he described the uh, Annapolis Convention as abortive. And I could never understand why he and so many other writers saw Annapolis that way, even as they described the convention as achieving everything that its key figures hoped it would. MacDonald um, was more willing than other historians of his stripe to identify the sort of Machiavellian nature of some of the, what the founders did in these conventions, and particularly Hamilton, whom MacDonald admired. And I think there was a certain distaste for acknowledging that sometimes the politics weren't squeaky clean at the time, and as they are in any period. But in in some ways, acknowledging the importance and success of Annapolis requires one to kind of be willing to accept that, I think.
0: In the early part of the uh, history of the United States, we see America governed under the Articles of Confederation. By 1786, what were some of the major problems emerging with that document?
1: The... uh key issue, I, th- I think, with the Articles government wasn't so much the form of government. And there are a number of historians, including some I've cited, who thought the Confederation government was just fine as it was. But the problem was, in my opinion, that you had some bad faith actors who exploited some of its weaknesses. The tariff issue, while fairly minimal and confined to certain geographic areas, pointed to this prob- larger problem states were simply not cooperating with one another or working with any unity of effort when it came to commercial or security issues. Um, Several had their own currencies, and as I stated, many of them placed tariffs on their own tariffs on one another. Some had their own export taxes. But um, to say that there was a problem of getting unanimity among the states uh, misses and even Sort of worst point in some ways, in that they couldn't even muster a quorum half the time to get business done. As I mentioned in the essay, it took weeks to ratify the Treaty of Paris because of this. Uh, Each state was dealing with its own, with foreign governments in its own way and uh, dealing with external and internal threats in its own way. And the rest of Europe was acutely aware of this fact. Uh, The British, very much so. And of all the signer, uh, signers of the Treaty of Paris, we were the only one without a standing navy at the time, and we were very vulnerable to Spain and especially Britain, and some who some very important Brits at the time were had their eyes on sort of pushing America toward a reconciliation or even just flat out reconquering when the time was right. And some might argue the incentives weren't there for Britain, but nevertheless, there was a great amount of chatter, some of which I described in the article. And maybe even more importantly, there were still British on North American soil after the treaty. Uh, When dealing with Britain or Spain, um, we could bluster as much as we wanted, but the truth is we had nothing in the way of uh, a Navy and much of an army to back any of those claims up with
0: force. Tariffs are a big issue in today's world for a number of reasons. Why was the issue of tariffs so contentious in 1786? In some ways, um,
1: I think the, tariffs, the tariff issue here was symbolic. Uh, in many places, it was a real problem. Uh, but in some ways, for the Annapolis Convention, it was a pretense for greater plans of Hamilton's. Uh, the states had uh, very different and varying duties and imposts, and they were willing at times to use those against their own neighbors, their, the other states. Uh, one example we'll talk about a little bit later, I think, um, you had competing interests even within state legislatures that fell along the typical lines of the interior agrarians and the coastal merchants. And depending on who got the upper hand, you would see tariffs on Uh, produce, luxury items, alcohol, and whatever the state wanted to protect its producers against. Rarely did these ever escalate into major conflicts, but when political fortunes changed within states, as they did frequently, uh, I think I'll talk about Rhode Island a little bit later, the tariffs would change as well, and it became... Just a, It became an unmanageable mess in some ways when dealing with trade within the new country and certainly when considering trade with uh, foreign nations that still had a stake in North America.
0: How did the Annapolis Convention originally come about?
1: I think to tell that story, we have to go back to 1785, just the year before. I've mentioned uh, some of the problems that kept people like Madison and Hamilton awake at night. And in some ways, uh, uh, this might might be a little tangential, but we tend to ignore just how radical the idea of a convention in the presence of a functioning, or at least with a confederation congress, a hypothetically functioning, legitimate legislature is. And I would encourage someone to think about the idea of someone calling a convention of the states today the way the founders did in this particular case – Conventions at this time had their own systems of rules, their own vocabulary, and the procedures by which they operated. There had to be agreed-upon rules. The, state's dele- the state delegates had to operate within their own commissions, and the scope of the convention had to be settled beforehand. So, getting back to 1785, you had the first—there were others, but the first one that tends to get mentioned is the Mount Vernon Conference, uh, just here in Alexandria— and this one was pretty mild in some ways, and despite the name George Washington just provided the hospitality of his home, although he probably, I mean, he certainly had some input with the conversation, but this adre- this conference addressed some of the commercial, commercial issues that I've mentioned already, in that it helped secure waterway rights between Maryland and Virginia. And of course, anything involving... Washington lends it lent something an air of authority. He was, you know, he was a very untouchable figure at this time and continued to be all the way to the end of the century. Madison and Edmund Randolph were there, and uh, three delegates from Maryland, including uh, Daniel St. Thomas, Jennifer, who was wealthy tobacco planter, landowner, and he later went on to represent Maryland at the Constitutional Convention. Long story short, the conference was pretty amiable. It was very successful. And life moved on. Madison, on the other hand, saw the opportunity, and most certainly Hamilton did as well, And but Madison has more of the, I guess, recorded opinion that we actually know of, that, hey, if this uh, convention worked so well, maybe we need to consider doing this again, since we can't seem to get much resolved at the national level. And it's, I think it's important in some ways to note that... Uh, Madison was not ready to pursue the changes to the scale that Hamilton was. Uh, Madison's writings uh, show him as being afraid of pushing things a little too quickly, but he was willing to use conventions as a way of getting the country to where he thought it should be and where the others at the convention thought it should be.
0: There are some big names featured in your article, names that everybody would recognize Who were the major players in this debate, and where did they side on the arguments? Well, at the convention you had,
1: mostly one side of this represented, as best as anyone can tell, because the only written account of the proceedings came from Hamilton's other New York delegate, which was Egbert Benson even though Hamilton wrote its final recommendations. Uh, the delegates included John Dickinson, George Reed, Madison, Hamilton, and Pennsylvania sent a Tinch Cox, who not as familiar to us now, but um, and he wasn't at the Philadelphia Convention, but he was very well known as a political economist in his time. And there were also the delegates from New Jersey and so forth. The problem with these states, or at least their delegates Is that they fundamentally the ones who attended were fundamentally agreed on what should happen, that there needed to be a stronger central government, and this is where things get a little uh, well, I'll use the word shady. Um, By any even by any definition, the Annapolis Convention had no quorum for business. Um, I think in the essay, I, I probably made it sound as if the other states just weren't interested or just couldn't afford to send delegates and in some cases they, that was probably true especially in New Hampshire but the the thing is is that you had delegates who were on their way to the convention as it started uh, certainly Massachusetts had delegates i think Francis Dana was one of them that was heading to Annapolis when all of this was happening uh, McDonald, I think pushed the narrative that Hamilton just rammed the convention through with the people that were present. And therefore the convention proceeded, they deliberated and adjourned before any dissenting voices could arrive. Anyone that might've represented those more interior interests, I should say, uh, that would have favored interstate tariffs or greater greater latitude in what they could do with states. And what followed, except in uh, Rhode Island, who was having a populist upheaval at this time, after the convention was that the states pushed uh, their congresses toward the constitutional convention and writing their conventions and Hamilton likely intended this to be the outcome. And he got his wish. So as far as the convention goes, um, it was the disagreement was more over a matter of degree between Hamilton and Madison, as far as how far we should push change. Hamilton ultimately triumphed with that. I think.
0: How did the unique economies of the North and South come into play here in this debate?
1: Well, as far as its influence on the convention, I think it might have been a bit more indirect. Uh, Ultimately, with some exceptions, Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia were not opposed to strengthening the central government for their own particular ends. In the 1780s, we had lost our two largest sources of trade, which both of which were British-controlled, the British mainland and the Caribbean. Immigration had slowed, uh, many indentured servants and slaves had found ways of using the war for emancipation, and both sources of labor had slowed down quite a bit, and as talks commenced at Paris, uh, the situation looked um, pretty grim for the new country. South Carolina had probably the best economy of the of the, of the South. They were exorbitantly wealthy, especially your, your rice and indigo planters. And ultimately, it's not so much that the South feared changing the Confederation, but its most vocal advocates, I think, feared losing their economic advantage, uh, their sort of the agricultural raw materials advantage that they had built up, and. They were a very export-heavy economy, and even though we, and you know, for 200 years, with some technical exceptions, have accepted that export taxes are patently unconstitutional, that was not the case in the 1780s, and they were very leery of not only export taxes, but uh, tariffs as well, because they wanted to get back to exporting cotton and whatever else they had. Um, even in the world today we have a few countries that have specific exports that are taxed as those materials leave the country and it it may it makes a certain sense as far as protecting against shortages but uh, that was one of the many compromises northern and southern states had to make the following year in philadelphia i don't know for sure if and i hate to not bring in north carolina and georgia into this but south carolina was really the biggest player in the south at this time and, and I don't know for certain whether they intended to participate in Annapolis but um uh, I think if they had things would have moved a little bit slower as they would have had certainly their their own issues their own questions just as if the, the delegates that we knew were coming toward Annapolis who didn't get to participate the the discussion probably wouldn't slowed down a bit, and certainly when the convention came about, there had to be a there were several compromises between northern and southern economic interests uh, and one of those compromises of course was on export taxes and and slavery of course i uh, don't can't uh leave that one out, but I think for the participants at Annapolis, it was just a ma- uh, the important thing was to Get the recommendation recommendation of the, the 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 next the following convention in Philadelphia, moving, and uh, I uh, I don't really I, I don't know I don't really know what else to say beyond that. It's just that uh, South Carolina would have slowed things down, but ultimately they agreed fundamentally that and a stronger central government.
0: In your article, you detail what you describe as a comical situation between New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Uh, the affair really kind of underscores the issues we're dealing with here, but could you talk about that event? Oh, yes.
1: I use the word comical here just because this was just such a wonderful instance of where the interstate tariff issues came to such a boiling point. And, uh, probably more so than anywhere else in the United States at the time, or in the Confederated states, and both New York and New Jersey, their legislatures at the time were dominated by agrarian interests from their interior, and this tended to split. And uh, we, I know, we talked sort of about northern, and north, and south economies, this same split. But even within these states in the north, you had um, similar divisions between. Uh, raw material exporters and produce exporters and you're more traders, bankers, and so forth on the coast. And uh, So the, 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 story, the story here was is just that New York and New Jersey got into their own little trade war. Uh, New York also had some goings on with Connecticut at the time, too. And they were both... It, placing, uh, duties on one another's produce coming in and out of the state. New Jersey decided they'd had enough. They started taxing, uh, the Sandy Hook Lighthouse, which New York basically borrowed from the state. And it just, it turned into this terrible back and forth. And I forget which, uh, who it was in my article or the essay, actually, where that finally convinced them, okay, you need to Stop this! Uh, n- not only do you have uh, American Indians on your border who are going to attack you, but you also had um, British Quebec relatively close to, and you still. And not only did you have um, British military forces there, but you had tens of thousands of uh, displaced American loyalists or British loyalists rather, who. Left and went to British Quebec at the time. So, of course, in the absence of any real standing army, uh, the three states were sort of whipped in line and said, uh, "You know, you you need to if something happens, you need to be able to work in concert." And when you get to Annapolis, uh, Connecticut, as far as I can remember, is not represented, but uh, New Jersey was certainly, and New Jersey gave their delegates to that convention the greatest amount of latitude to make changes um, than any of the other states did.
0: How did British newspapers view and influence these debates? Because they were pretty involved in the process as onlookers. There
1: were, um, I mean, even before the war, there had been the share of uh, American-friendly Brits, although they didn't necessarily want to carry the arguments against the parliament quite as far as we did but uh... after the war and as this uh... these trade wars started kind of coming about between seventeen eighty three and seventeen eighty seven um, you had some newspapers and commentators who are making some just very extreme anti-american rhetoric uh, At the time, we had a few of our founders in Europe working as something sort of akin to ambassadors or diplomats. Uh, Jefferson and Franklin were out there. I think Jay and Adams might have been. And naturally, they had their finger on the pulse of what was going on in Europe, and they were riding frequently with uh, Jefferson, Madison, and people back in the U.S. at the time. And it's not so much that... Any of these people cared what the British thought about them, but uh, what alarmed them were the claims that when it came to trade, Americans couldn't be, uh, couldn't be traded with in good faith, uh, especially when they were so divided and so economically vulnerable. And uh, you did, uh, I think I might have alluded to this earlier, I mean, you did have some key, I don't know how key they were, but military figures and so forth, discussing you know hey I mean they're, they're looking pretty bad I think we might be able to push for a reconciliation or whatever and this there there was there was no like uh, no secret as far as what the uh, many of the British were thinking and they were there. I think I published one particularly forceful example of the rhetoric they were using to Maybe dissuade traders from considering going to Amer- to America for anything, and at the time, you still had a lot of British goods still in uh, America at the time too, and that, and that had depressed America's own economy as well. And they were, they were you had quite a few who were looking for an opportunity at regaining
0: what they had lost. What do you think should be the legacy of the Annapolis Convention? What should the average American know about it? Well, I
1: don't think it should be counted as a failure at all. Uh, Annapolis clearly achieved its goals, whether they were stated or unstated. Um, It plays neatly into the progressive histories that kind of want to overplay the economics and the wealth of the key figures. And certainly, uh, I think Charles Beard mentioned the Annapolis Convention, which I mean, completely, as, as far as he was concerned, validated his ideas about the founding. And, But when you look past the tariff issue, which that's not to say dismiss it entirely, but when you put the convention in its full context, you can sort of see the emergency that some of the participants at Annapolis thought the country was facing and just the unwillingness of the collective states to make any unity of effort toward preventing what could have occurred. Uh, not only with britain but also with spain and that doesn't resolve the issue of whether or not it was right for such a small number of people to take it upon themselves to put a new government in motion and i don't think that it should i think that discussion should be ongoing but uh... If the states could have formed, you know, there's always the question of whether could the states have formed other compacts like the Mountain Burning Compact or whether or not they could unify for any sort of defensive military posture. Uh, Those are kind of hypotheticals. But, you know, I think that the New Jersey and New York spat made it difficult for me to imagine that they could even accomplish that much. And the fallout from the later constitutional convention, I think, amplified these questions. And for what it's worth, I believe just as Forrest McDonald did, that there were more than a handful of instances where some of the most significant questions were settled in less than savory method, with less than savory methods. And I was actually uh, before I was writing were. Somewhere around the same time I was writing this, I was thinking about writing an essay, sort of on the secret conversations that uh, occurred not only here but in Philadelphia during the convention, and and McDonald writes about some of those as well. And but the problem I have, and I guess getting towards the question of legacy, is how. People, some some people will um, use this as a sort of a test of something's legitimacy, uh, the, the legitimacy of the founding of the new country, and I think that that is not. A, I don't tend to think of that as a very productive debate. It's, it reminds me of a lot of debates that went on uh, after Brown v. Board of Education was. Uh, that decision was handed down at the Supreme Court about the 14th Amendment and whether or not it was legally ratified. It, it's certainly an interesting discussion, but as far as its pr- practical value for determining legitimacy, uh, not only is it questionable and debatable, but I, I don't think that it has very much practical value. So as far as looking back at Annapolis goes, uh, how our how Annapolis went... One should look at it as certainly an achievement toward what ultimately became the new constitution and the new country. How it got there is certainly left open to interpretation, but the overall legacy should be one that it was what we needed and was very successful.
0: Jason Yance, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.